Hello, and welcome to another episode of The How, a W12 Plus podcast channeling water solutions. The How focuses on water solutions and the people behind them from around the world. Each episode, we uncover the professional and personal stories of people and organizations rethinking relationships to water. From W12 Plus, I'm your host, Judy Jane. You'll meet my co-host for this episode, Ellie Leaney, in just one moment. In this episode, Ellie and I talk to Leanna Hosea, an investigative journalist and filmmaker with 14 years of experience working for the BBC around the world. Leanna's directed and produced an award-winning environmental documentary feature film, Thirst for Justice, which aired on Bloomberg Quick Take. She previously spent three years based in the Middle East, where her BBC team was nominated for a Bayou War Reporting Award for their coverage of the Arab Spring. In her documentary for BBC's Our World, Leanna got exclusive access to film with rhino poachers, and as a Middle East reporter, she went undercover to film inside Qatar's squalid World Cup labor camps. More recently, Leanna has turned her lens to water and environmental stories. As a Knight Wallace Fellow at the University of Michigan, and then a Fellow at Michigan School of Environment, she has cultivated expertise on water issues, environmental justice, and health. Leanna currently works at BBC Investigations, where she uncovered PFAS chemicals in UK drinking water, antibiotic-resistant genes in the River Thames, and raw sewage dumping, just to name a few of her stories. In this episode, Leanna shares her experiences reporting in locations such as Yemen and the West Bank. She discusses finding water as one of the root causes of conflict, the role of journalism in educating the public and holding government to account, and tells us what makes a good story. Without further ado... Here's Leanna. Welcome to the podcast, Leanna Hosea. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for inviting me. It's great to be here. I'm excited to have this conversation about water, all things water. And I have my co-host here with me today, Ellie Leaning. Hi, thanks for having me, Judy. So uh, as with usual on The How, we like to start off our episode with a check-in question. Um, for us all to get to know each other one, a little bit better and for the listener to uh, get to know us a little bit better too. So the check-in question for this episode is, is there a book, film, or something similar that changed how you see the natural world? And I can go first since I asked this question. <laughs> and <laughs> I have this book on my shelf right now, Finding the Mother Tree by Suzanne Simard, uh, which I quite enjoyed. And I think they're making a movie out of it soon. Um, and what I really liked about this book, so Suzanne is a forester and she actually went to my university where I went to school, Oregon State University. So it was really cool to hear her talk about landscapes that I have been in. And so I think that made it particularly uh, resonant for me. Um, and she goes into a bunch of great like research and science about how fungi are so important to trees and really, you know, talking about the connection between the trees have with one another. And what I really liked about the book too, was it goes into her personal life as being uh, a young woman, um, you know, one of the few in the forestry industry at the time when she was uh, growing up and, you know, going through her career. And so I thought it was uh, really interesting to see her perspectives um, as she was going through her career. Ellie, what about you? That's a fun question. I, it's really hard to choose one and I might answer one that isn't necessarily like directly about nature, but it, the book that gravitates to my mind is 
the Blue Sweater. Uh, it's a biography, um, or I guess sort of a biography written by the founder and CEO of Acumen. And it really talked, it got me thinking about, you know, how that I'm passionate about these issues of, I mean, ranging from environmental crises to humanitarian crises, but the challenge often is about the like organization and the management of how we approach them and what's sort of appropriate or what's not appropriate and what is actually promoting like a long-term solution to an issue versus addressing a Band-Aid or uh, addressing a symptom and providing a Band-Aid solution. So I think that's that's one that I always come back to when I want inspiration for why I'm I'm working on the stuff I do. I haven't heard of that one before, Blue Sweater. Yeah, I suggest it. What about you, Liana? It is a difficult question, and I'd love to read the one about trees because I've been wanting to, to read more about how trees kind of communicate with each other through their roots and through fungi. So I'm definitely going to check out your one. But the one that springs to my mind is a book that I first read when I was 13 years old called Black Elk Speaks. And it was relates the story of Black Elk, who's this Oglala Lakota medicine man. And uh, back in the um, 1930s, I believe, and this German um, writer went and kind of interviewed him. And it was really what struck me was obviously he was sort of it was about the ghost dance movement. And, uh, you know, and he survived, you know, the wounded knee massacre as well so it was about kind of history but what came through as well was just the the different perspective and um, of nature the uh from uh, like his uh Lakota perspective and it's kind of interesting because so many years later when I uh, 2016 when I um went to live in Michigan and I did a fellowship at the University of um Michigan and Knight Wallace one and took Native American literature and that was on the syllabus and my teacher ended up connecting me with his aunt who's this Ojibwe um, Midewin and uh, water carrier and she took me to Standing Rock and she was you know during the whole kind of movement against the Dakota Access Pipeline and it ended up being, you know, a large part of my um, documentary film, Thirst for Justice. And that was sort of the, the setting, again, kind of of, of Black Elk and this kind of prophecy that, that comes through um, that a lot of, um, uh, I suppose, the Pan-Indian movement have, um, obviously, lots of different tribes have their own prophecies and beliefs, but there is the Pan-Indian kind of movement and a lot of the the prophecy kind of centers around, um, you know, when the world has become befouled and the waters have turned bitter, you know, human beings are going to have these two options to choose from, which is materialism or spirituality. And if they choose spirituality, they will survive. And if they choose materialism, it's going to be the end of it. And I think that kind of environment, you know, those sort of, um, the indigenous perspective on the environment is very important in the way that they see water as sacred in the way that I suppose we're going to have to change our relationship and how we treat and think of water if we're going to, you know, move, move forward and continue to have this, this resource or how, um, some indigenous communities will see it as this living being and they and continue to serve us, protect us, look after us and provide us life. So I think that was a very impactful 
book for me. I think that's so cool because that book you read when you were quite young, right? Um, and that it was that circled back to your work when you were in Michigan and for your documentary, which we'll definitely get into uh, later in this conversation. But I wanted to take a step back and kind of recap people a little bit because uh, you've had quite a queer Liana spanning over a decade with the BBC and have reported on rhino poachers, presidents, the Egyptian revolution. And I wanted to ask how you went um, from those stories to reporting on water and what was compelling about water stories for you? Yeah, so quick portrait history of my career. It's been about 14 years with the BBC, mostly in world service radio and world TV. A lot of foreign stories. I've, you know, traveled a lot around the world, which is fantastic. Being at the center of, you know, um, history-making moments, which has been a privilege. And I've been based in the Middle East for a couple of years, you know, all over the Middle East, in Yemen, Syria, um, Jerusalem, and, you know, covering what essentially was really conflict, revolution, democratic, you know, movements, uh, war as well in uh, Gaza, Libya, and so forth kind of at the background there is this problem with water in all of these countries so except for example when i was in yemen you know, the whole country's really you could see the collapse of of the state and of the functioning of the state and there you know sanaa the capital of yemen has always been said to be one of the first capital cities which will run out of water obviously Cape Town isn't a capital city, but, you know, it was nearly there uh, with day zero uh, a few years ago. But, um, yeah, and seeing how people are kind of queuing up for water and they're drawing water from so deep it actually comes up hot. Or in Syria, before the revolution, I was there before and kind of uh, in, in the run up to it and just before it started, actually. And I got to sit down with the deputy prime minister at the time in his house and get to question him about whatever I wanted to ask. And one of the things that I did ask was about kind of the drought and how prices for, you know, bread, for example, wheat had just really gone up. The price of living had gone up. And, you know, he kind of said, well, you know, poor people just feel poorer, but, you know, they're not, they're just more rich people. But that kind of drought had such big implications and um, was a driving factor one of the driving factors, of course, for um, the uprising there. Again, in the West Bank, I found myself, uh, I went to um, this sort of one of the settlement uh, in the West Banks, uh, near a a settlement. It's a Palestinian town called Nabi Saleh. And the Israeli settlement has kind of cut them off from their local spring. And this is the point of conflict. So every you know, every Friday there's there's stone throwing and there's, you know, the army are down there throwing tear gas. And again, it was all about access to the spring water because water is so essential and, and kind of precious. So, and I've always been interested in, in the environment. Um, you know, before I joined the BBC, I used to work for an environment magazine. So it was, it was always a big interest of mine. And, you know, I see making my film on rhino poaching kind of as part of, you know, that kind of environmental interest. And I looked at it from an environmental justice perspective as well. Um, And so when I kind of wanted to step off that crazy wheel of, you know, 
traveling all the time, kind of going and living abroad for six months and, and having these very I- intense experiences, um, reporting and producing for the BBC from these sort of big uh, kind of moments in history. I-, I really wanted to step back and think, well, what is actually some of the, the most important story of our time, which is not being told, is all around water. We're at this watershed moment you know, where the UN estimates that in the next decade, demand is going to outstrip supply by 40%. So who owns it? Who's got the access to it? Who's got the rights? And, you know, there's so much that is impacting on it. You know, intensive farming is killing rivers. You know, there's raw sewage being uh, dumped out. People are running out of water. So I just feel that this is really... At the moment, it's an undertold story, but it is the key story of our time because water is the calling card for climate change. It's how we're all going to feel it. It's how we can relate to it, drought, flooding. So that's why I feel that I want to be kind of focusing on water. Yeah, that's you have had such an incredible career and a breadth of experience. And what, what I'm hearing is that, you know, as you've reported on, particularly on conflict in in these different environments, you keep running into water as sort of the root problem or one of the root problems too, that is kind of causing the manifestation of uprisings or famine or others, war and things like that. Is that, is that what you're seeing? Yeah, I would, I would say that it is, it is a driver already, you know, I mean, um, I haven't been to Nigeria, but I've been, you know, read around the, you know, chronic, drought and the shrinking of Lake Chad, really driving men to join Boko Haram. So how, you know, lack of water, it's always been, you know, in human history, it's, it's, it's you know, we're essentially fighting around resources. I think water is really a big part of that. And it's also who has water and who has access and rights to it is also a reflection of our global power dynamics. So, in Cape Town, you know, where we met, um, I, you know, went and did a piece in the informal settlements and, you know, you've got hundred families sharing one tap. Um, so, you know, and, and terrible sanitation conditions and people, obviously they can't help it, but they're like throwing all their rubbish and defecating in these slums right into the river and, and out into the sea. And it's just how, you know, I think water you know, it's how it connects us all. So, you know, all these sort of sacrificed communities and forgotten and powerless people, it all kind of does, it does all circle back to us. Like with COVID, I think that was very strong. Like we're not, we're, none of us are safe until we're all safe, which uh, I mean, I don't know if that is now being challenged because a lot of us have the vaccine and a, and a lot of us don't. And again, that's around who's got the power and the money and who doesn't. But I suppose it's these kind of questions that also drives and interests me in what I'm doing. Yeah. Uh, for I'll, I'll ask this next question, but I can, I, I feel like you're already responding to it in part. Um, but we want to hear more about uh, what kind of problem you see your work addressing at W12 plus uh, we focus a lot on solutions um, and what people can do. And so I can hear, you know, climate change is the biggest problem of, of our society right now. Um, but can you tell me more about the kind of problems you see your work addressing? Yeah, I mean, we talk about 
solutions. I think that, you know, knowing the problem and how the problem is coming about is also important. And so that's why I kind of believe in in journalism and telling stories, which might, you know, might initially focus on problems. And obviously, solutions are really important. But I also believe that, you know, investigating um, what the problem is, is, is pretty critical to start with. And I'm actually, um, I've got together, you know, with an environmental journalist, and we are, hope, you know, fundraising to launch um, a non-profit investigative journalism unit at the moment called Watershed Investigations, where we want to really just focus in on water investigations and all things water. And the first one we've done is um, on PFAS. So the PFAS chemical uh, was obviously the subject of Dark Waters, the Hollywood movie with Mark Ruffalo. And it's pretty big news in America, but over here in America, uh, in England, when I, UK rather, when I got back, no one's even heard of it. You know, it's thought of, or maybe if they've seen the movie, they think, oh, that's a problem in America because it really kind of uncovers how our environment agency, our government, they aren't actually doing the work. <laughs> They're not inspecting you know we hardly you know our environment agency here probably like in america and many other countries you know they they they've been gutted they they don't have kind of the resources they don't have ins many inspectors at all lots of inspectors over the you know the past decades or so have been kind of they just got rid of them so there's no one to go out and kind of check the problems and the inspectors that we do have um, they don't actually have any regulatory powers to tackle water pollution or enforce any environmental rules. So, you know, a solution would be to have inspectors who actually just carry out the law. Um, at the moment in the UK, you know, we've had like, um, there was a report came out that showed how you know the environment agency like downgraded ninety three percent of prosecutions for serious pollution over the last um, four years um, and they just downgraded those sanctions. So investigators, you know, you know, some investigators did gather evidence, prepared case files for almost 500 serious um, incidents involving, you know, the worst types of pollution of rivers and coastal waters, and really serious waste crimes. And then the agency just downgraded all of the seriousness and to make it a low sanction like a warning letter so there's there's just no kind of enforcement and I think that's you know what I saw you know in in America as well you might have the legislation but it just it just doesn't get enforced yeah. so yeah, yeah that that that's one kind of easy solution and I think that by kind of highlighting <laughs> that problem where you know uh, the regulators aren't doing anything and they're allowing companies to regulate themselves <laughs> you know um uh, it's that's you know that's a that's a major problem like the uk water companies are actually all privately owned over here and they have been dumping millions of tons of raw sewage illegally into our rivers and you know i went I went down and did a report on it on the bank of the River Thames. And it's just really disgusting. You're just, you know, there's just float, swimming. There are the whole banks, there's whole islands of 
wet wipes and sanitary towels and you know you you know when I put these I put my boots on and I start wading down and then oh I suck right in and you know you're sinking into pretty much raw sewage so it was definitely dirty work um and but just highlighting that and I think you know people here just didn't realize that they're just constantly dumping raw sewage into rivers so now there is this kind of movement in the UK where people have, you know, you know, people want to swim in our rivers and, you know, they can't if, you know, none of our rivers meet, you know, they all fail kind of standards. They're all, you know, polluted and, and, and dirty. So, you know, that's, that, that kind of gets people going and, you know, they can't, they can't go wild swimming or, you know, you're fishing and so forth. I just wanted to kind of, um, summarize a little bit and reflect on your role as a journalist and um, the reflective on the role of journalism in our society to help the general public who are busy with their day-to-day lives um, and not following, you know, the government agencies, every press release, every report out. um, And that is such an important role. Um, And I'm wondering, what else do you think the general public doesn't quite understand about water and environmental issues? Well, I think there's probably quite a lot, you know, we, we are all kind of siloed and busy. And I think it's journalists job to kind of find, you know, what the important issues are. And, um, you know, for example, in the UK, we just take it kind of for granted that our tap water is is clean and drinkable. And, you know, maybe a lot of the time, it is. I don't want to scaremonger, but because we and I haven't tested for everything, but I did test for PFAS, and and no one had been testing tap water for PFAS. The Environment Agency had just been doing kind of models um, initially until very recently, and um, so we went around the country and found it found it in the tap water, and in some places we found it really extremely high. Um, and some, you know, and then the problem, another problem over here that people didn't realize is is the limits that you're allowed to have. And that was the problem, you know, in the U.S. as well. When it comes to lead, you know, you don't realize, the, you know, you might get an OK. Oh, yeah, everything is fine. But maybe the limits are too high because they're not a health based limit. They're um, sort of it's it's based on it's based on finance. You know, how much is it going to cost to clean up? How much is a essentially how much is a human life worth and is it worth cleaning that up and then at what you know what level are we going to allow kind of contaminants in and I think that you know people people don't realize that and there's a lot of trust which you know you don't want to be obviously making everyone fearful and in Flint it just went so the other way I found out you know from from living there and kind of working there um working there more than living there um that they just lost trust in in the authorities completely, and that's the that's the danger as well. You know, when the authorities do let you down, and then people totally lose trust, you know, you can get uh, you know a complete lack of trust in absolutely everybody. You know, in scientists as well, and and in journalists too. So there is this kind of backlash around that lack of trust. Um, uh, but you know, if those that trust has been broken, it's kind of understandable. Yeah, I think that's an important message to rem- to remind people who are working in labs, who are working, you know, on their computers, going through all this data, to remember the people behind the numbers, people whose homes um, are potentially affected. I'm wondering, 
Is there specifically within the water world that you've seen is an underreported story that you think needs um, a lot more coverage? Yeah, I mean, we have a, you know, we have many stories, many stories I kind of love to do. Um, I think um, agribusiness um, impact on water is important to look at. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's not really kind of investigated. There's not enough investigative journalism to my mind. And I know being in the mainstream, you're sort of under this 24-hour news pressure. So it's sort of, you've got to churn out a story tomorrow. And um, I know in my department in the BBC, they just axed investigative journalism about six months ago after COVID cutbacks and restructuring because investigations take time and they don't always yield results. But um but I think they're important. <laughs> so, yeah, so there's that, um, you know, maybe, you know, the, in, in India, for example, they're like looking to open up huge swathes of the country for coal. Then there's the pharmaceutical industry and their impact on water. I think there's so many kind of water stories um, that can be told, you know, and, and, you know, maybe the whole deep sea uh, mining. That's really interesting, obviously, you know, it's not started yet, but the the kind of the starting gun has been shot off. So, you know, are are we going to see deep sea mining, and what that's going to mean for marine life, and and um, and then how that will impact on on the rest of the the ecosystem and you know the the, the planet? I think that's a really interesting story too. Yeah, absolutely. So, geez, you've worked in so many different places and on such, I mean, seemingly very different problems and issues. So I'm curious if throughout your career, just generally, if you've been more surprised by the differences between these places that you've worked in and how these issues are manifesting very uniquely, or if you've been more surprised about the similarities that you didn't expect to see when you initially went into those places. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think they are the similarities um, that there seems to be some sort of a, a, a kind of when it comes to sort of uh, water stories and uh, pollution stories and, uh, you know, the difficulties of linking, um, you know, that those pollution incidents to public health impacts. There's there's a lot of similarities, I think. Flint, you know, is a is just a really good example that um, kind of resonates when I, you know, I didn't realize when I was in America and, and making this film in Flint and on the Navajo Nation, uh, looking at the lead contamination and on the Navajo, the uranium contamination. And, you know, they're seemingly, obviously, it's the same country, but, you know, different, different sides of the country, you know, one is on a Native American reservation, and the other is, you know, in a inner city. And the kind of the similarities that people um, kind of faced when when that um, uh, kind of pollution incident happened was was really similar. So that's what really came out in my film and what I made my film about Thirst for Justice. It was, um, you know, so when there was this big, so I kind of focused initially on this big uh, uranium mill 
disaster, the Church Rock Uranium Mine Spill of 1979, which was the largest release of radioactive materials by volume in US history. So um, it kind of all swept down into the into the little Colorado River. And people, you know, they were concerned. You know, they some people raised questions, you know, we need to monitor people over time now. What is going to be the health impacts? Let's have a health study. And they were just stonewalled. No, everything is fine. Um, you know, there was kind of scant coverage. No, anyone who kind of spoke out or oh, your anti-communist nutters, you know, you're, you're uh, off the political spectrum, you know, you're just uh, crazy. And um, in Flint as well, that kind of happened. People were going to City Hall with, you know, jugs of brown water, clumps of their hair in their hands. And they were told, no, the water is fine and it's safe. I think um, Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha the pediatrician who showed the links between um, the levels of, uh, you know, the blood lead levels in uh, children and how it coincided with uh, blood lead, uh, lead in water. And they called her hysterical. So this kind of, um, that kind of pushback of, of uh, is, is very similar. Um, I, I do think that there's always some citizen scientists and, you know, some some people who are real drivers in their community. And there's no, there's not always many of them. It's usually like a few real dogged ones who, you know, it becomes their life to gather all this, you know, to, to teach themselves and, you know, to gather all the evidence and, you know, try and keep going and keep pushing the authorities and asking questions. So I do find that quite similar. I think that note on similarities does come through really beautifully in your film, uh, Thirst for Justice, as you talk about. Um, I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about the Knight Wallace Fellowship and your at the University of Michigan um, and the process for reporting those stories and specifically what sort of difficulties you experienced. I was so, yeah, I feel so lucky to have got that Knight Wallace Fellowship. Um, and it came at a time in my career where I was, I didn't realize I was kind of feeling a bit of burnout, but I think maybe I was, I spent so many years in the Middle East and it was just, you know, with the failure of the Arab Spring and the, the monumental kind of crackdown and, and massacres of which, you know, I was a witness to at least one in Egypt where they killed like a thousand people in a week. So getting the Knight Wallace Fellowship really allowed me to kind of step off and think, kind of blue sky think, which is what their fellowship is about. What do I want to do with my career? Where do I want to go? What's my dream kind of job? And I thought, well, I want to be an investigative journalist and filmmaker. You know, I've always kind of loved documentary film. And that's how I enjoy learning is by watching documentary. So um I got to go to University of Michigan and study um, environmental justice uh, degree classes. I took um, first year degree classes with Dorsita Taylor there. And, you know, my mentor was um, Professor Rebecca Hardin um, from the School of Environment and Sustainability. And then also taking uh, Native American literature and then just being with this group of amazing journalists like, a couple, you know, one of the one of the other fellows had uh, 
won the Pulitzer for breaking the whole Panama Papers. <laughs> so part of me was like imposter syndrome um, to be with such a group of amazing journalists. But yeah, it was so inspiring. We had we lived in Ann Arbor, which is just a beautiful, beautiful town in Michigan, and there's like. You know, lots of uh, glowworms or fireflies in the autumn and there's rabbits and chipmunks just running around in the neighborhood. I'd never kind of, um, I'd never been to Michigan before. And then the great being by the Great Lakes, it's just such a special place. These vast lakes, which are more like the sea. And I got to do some rice harvesting on a canoe and just really kind of broaden my horizons in a, in a different direction. And you know, I thought to myself, well, if I meet the right, um, the right characters um, to to make a documentary, I'm I'm going to do it because my research was to like look at um, water rights and and water on the Navajo and in Flint through you know the lens of environmental justice, and that's what I kind of I ended up making a film based kind of on my kind of research. It enabled me to make the film because the fellowship was generous because making a film independently is really expensive. Um, it's lucky I can shoot and edit my own material. So I didn't like have to hire a cameraman, but it's still, it was a bigger undertaking than I realized it was going to be because I'd only ever sort of done shot like three to four minute news pieces. So embarking on I'm making a feature document 70 minute feature documentary was like a leap that yeah that's, it was a bigger leap than I thought was going to be <laughs> on that note you know I think you have so much experience and expertise in storytelling and you talked about you know finding the right characters to help tell a story and I wonder what advice or what you think the water sector within ourselves is getting wrong about communication or storytelling? What could be done better? Um, you know, what makes a good story? Uh, if you could offer some advice or just kind of your process. I always, like, I think uh, finding, like, some good people with real stories, uh, you know, that's, that's the kind of the key to it, I think. People who are doing, and they're doing something about it, you know, so they, you've got, like, some kind of, there's there's so there's a short there's you know it's different for news so there's the news um there's the news format which is sort of you know a three minute format which i think is you know perfectly uh good and and doable kind of for um for people in in the sector you know because you can just do it on your mobile phone and you know you can turn the camera on yourself and and talk about you know who you are and sort of like introduce and have you know have have some kind of personal insight and why it means something to you or you might find like someone interesting so uh, who is impacted so that's the key should all you have to find the, the person who is impacted and yes interview them but then film them like in in the in doing something relevant you know maybe it's collecting water or you know, opening shots, or you, you know, showing contaminated water, you opening the tap and, you know, setting the, setting the water on fire or showing that it's brown or showing a massive queue for, you know, all these uh, people trying to use like a one, one water hose. So you've got to have the real people on the ground. And that's, 
I think that's the way that you hook people in. Um, and then if it's, it's, if it's longer term, again, you need those kind of like a main character who's struggle to achieve their goals. You can kind of follow that. Um, and I guess, you know, in a long format, successful storytelling is, you know, you've got to start with some sort of inciting incident. And then there's, you know, you've got to follow like the struggles, the rise, the fall, the, the failures, the success. Um, so it's that kind of emotional journey. And it's difficult because if you're a um, scientist, you know, you're trying to, to, to move, a, uh, to, to remove emotion from from what you're doing and also like as a pure news journalist as well you know you've got to you kind of you know you want to be impartial and sort of remove emotion but then you've got to get that emotion through someone else then because that's how people engage so and that and that's why people care and then you've got to make it you've got to let people know why it matters to them why it's a bigger issue and and i just think you know, uh, for me, it's, it's, it's all about, you know, those real people. And I go on instinct. If someone, you know, if I'm talking to someone and they, you know, they touch me or they, you know, they really sound great, that's, that's who I go with. And obviously I will have an expert um, kind of after that, you know, and, and, and take kind of an expert clip, but, you know, it's the it's the it's the actual real stories of impacted people you've got to tell first. So instead of um, yeah, instead of having them as an afterthought, it's I think it's kind of important for you know academics or scientists or people in the sector to kind of bring in the real people from the beginning and really listen because I suppose what makes a good storyteller is a good listener. Mm. I love that. Yeah. I mean, it, it is, it's so true. People connect with people, you know, they don't automatically connect with data or numbers, but you do need to have that. And it's that, that combination of, of data and storytelling that probably is that magic thing that we're looking for. Animation mm-hmm. is good too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, 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 and just a little Instagram posts of, you know, uh, to uh, throughout your your experiment for example maybe you know take people on the journey or whatever that journey is for you absolutely yeah so Leanna what are you working on now anything you're particularly excited about or anything that you are hoping to get involved in that you'd like to share with our listeners um well I've just we're we're doing one more PFAS related story to our data collection and we did like um we worked with me and this um other environmental journalist um who i'm hopefully setting up this non-profit investigative unit with we you know kind of worked with scientists and and professors as well but we kind of went out and you know did all the kind of the the water collection so we had a bbc story on um finding it in all the uk tap water and we uh, not well England. We found we did it on England tap water and how you know leading scientists were you know were concerned that they were concerning levels. And then I did a radio documentary on it. And then we've got another piece coming out focusing on the river pollution. So um, 
we found it being pumped out um, by a, a manufacturer. So that's going to be our next story coming out. Thank you so much for joining us, Leanna. Um, I think I am quite inspired by the work you've done and just how on the ground and how directly involved you are with all of this work. And so, you know, our last question for you, is there a sort of call to action or last thought you would like to leave our listeners with? <laughs> a part of me wants to be like, fund watershed investigations <laughs> and all donations are welcome. No, and uh, no, I mean, it's just, um, I suppose, listen to um, citizens and ordinary people. And, you know, um, I'm also hoping to do, you know, go to the, the Great Lakes and, and look more into, do a story about uh, the tunnel under the, um, the proposed Enbridge Tunnel under the Straits of Mackinac. And, um, you know, also to focus on why the indigenous communities are, are against it. And, and, and so I, I think, you know, maybe listening more to indigenous tribes, listening more to ordinary citizens, even though they might not always seemingly have every fact to hand, they do have, you know, valid information and are experts in their own lives and so I think they deserve to be a bigger part of the conversation and decision-making than they currently are. That is a great note to, to leave on. Thank you so much, Leanna. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thanks for joining us on this episode of The How, a W12 Plus podcast channeling water solutions. W12 Plus is a movement to connect, catalyze, and incubate urban water solutions, starting with local organizations and leaders. Find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram, and at our website, w12plus.org. That's w12plus.org. Thanks, and we hope you join us again next time.